Our gospel today is uh, it's always one that's interesting to walk through. You see, every book of Scripture, especially every gospel, has a, a form, a, a structure. And it's beautiful when you start looking into that form and structure of how those books are written. Our scripture today that we read and that you know is where Christ is led into the desert to be tempted, to fast, to pray. But if you were to back up just a moment, let's remind ourselves where we're at. You see, he had come up out of the waters of baptism. God had spoken over him, sealed him as his son and said, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he raised him up out of those waters. And then in Luke's gospel, there's a break. There's a genealogy. Seems odd in the midst of this narrative to throw a genealogy into the midst of it where you just start reading off family after family after family. But this genealogy is a great genealogy because it takes Jesus from where he was at all the way to being God's son. It's purposeful. This this little break in the narrative is Luke's point of saying this right here, even though we just read God's word saying this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, Luke highlights that. Runs a big yellow highlighter across it, a big exclamation point and says, look, this right here is Jesus' line that goes all the way back to God. This is God's son. It's his identity. It's who he is. There's no doubt about it. You can trace it. And then we get to the part in the desert. I don't know how many of you have spent so much time in the desert. It's not too far away from here. California is mostly desert east of us. So you don't even have to go to another state. But deserts, in my mind, are not enjoyable. My vicarage here was in the desert. The favorite question of everybody in Phoenix, how are you handling the heat in the summer? Same way you all do. You live in air conditioning. You don't stand in the heat for very long. It's 123 in the daytime. I pull steaks off the grill at 110. That means it's hotter outside than the temperature of the meat that I cook on a grill. That's hot. You don't do anything in that. You go from inside to car to inside or in water. That's it. So to think of 40 days of fasting in the desert, 40 days of prayer in the desert, 40 days of walking around solitary in the desert does not sound enjoyable. In the wilderness... Or you're alone with your thoughts. And that's it. Does not sound like a fun time. And we see Jesus replicating what the Israelites had done out of their exodus, out of Egypt, right? Forty days as they traveled along and were carried to the promised land. And then they said, no, God, that's not the land we want. There's too many big, scary people there. And then 40 years worth of wandering in the desert. So here Jesus is. Wandering around in the desert, hungry, and rightly so. I would imagine the stones did look pretty good. And then we hear Satan's temptation. For myself, every time I've walked through this text, I'm usually so focused on what he's asked Jesus to do, I, I start to miss the point before it. 
But the temptations that come along, you see the picture that's on your bulletin, and there's actually, I wanted to zoom in on each portion of that picture. And the first one's great. You have Jesus sitting there. And for any of you that have taken art history classes, it's great to see uh, different things that go on with art. Look at the size of the two figures. Who carries more importance? Who is this focused upon? All that sort of thing, right? But here's Jesus, hungry, tired, been walking around in the desert. The manna wasn't enough. Okay, the manna was for the Israelites in Exodus. But nonetheless, you get the connection between the two. He's hungry. He's there. And Satan comes in. He says, hey, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be bread. And a lot of times we focus in on that and say, man, what wouldn't it be? You know, if I were hungry, I'd want to do that. I'd want to provide for myself. I would want to, you know, get some sort of sustenance going in this situation. I'd want to eat in the middle of this. And we can see where that temptation would make sense. Satan's trying to work through his belly to get to his heart. <laughs> Men, have you ever felt that way? Path to a man's stomach is, or heart is through his stomach? Anyway. Temptation of Satan sitting there saying, look, you can feed yourself, Jesus. Again, what I had missed in the early years, the motivation here is for, not just simply for Jesus to feed himself, but to hand off his dependence, to focus in on himself, to turn his eyes inward. It should sound something familiar to Genesis 3 when Satan walked in the garden to Adam and Eve and said, yeah, God said those words, yeah, but what do you want? Did he really say those words or can we twist it around a little bit because you can take care of things, you can be independent, you can provide for yourself in this setting? It's the same trick every time the same goal every time satan's same goal every time and every bit of temptation is to separate god's children from god to separate creation from the creator to separate who we are as god's children from the source of life so if you read those words again for that first temptation a little more emphasis on the beginning. If you are the Son of God, because you are, right, Jesus? You are the Son of God. I remember when you were hanging out up in heaven, but now you're down here in flesh. So if you're really the Son of God, um, take care of yourself. Be tempting. We know how Jesus answers. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word from God as that verse continues on, right? What I love there is who Jesus identifies himself as there for a second too. Every man shall not live by bread alone. The Son of God standing there in flesh and relating with men through hunger. Now the temptations carry on. The temptations keep going and we see Jesus in this next temptation where Satan takes him up onto the top of a hill, right? And Pastor Bob and I were talking about this, and he remembers a movie at one point in time. However good this movie may have been about Jesus' life, uh, he said, 
it was here or there across the whole movie, but this one scene, this one moment, the way they depicted this temptation was beautiful. See, the way we hear temptations and interpret Scripture a lot of times points to how we see things in life as well. We're kind of the second reader of that text as, the, as we receive those words, right? And so we read this and we hear Satan say, bow down to me and the cities, the kingdoms, the power, the glory will all be yours. The way this movie depicted this scene was actually quite beautiful. Jesus was up there and as Satan was tempting him with it, what Satan actually showed him was not the glory of all the cities, but the suffering, the hurt, the pain, the heartache that had been going on throughout time in every single one of the kingdoms that had been on the earth. And you can imagine that temptation for the Son of God as Satan says, why don't you fix it, Jesus? Look at the hurt and the heartache going on. Why don't you take care of that? If you're the Son of God, why don't you take care of all the hurt and the suffering now for your creation, your people that's going on right now? Remove it from them, Jesus, and the power and the glory will be yours. See, Jesus remembered his identity as the Son of God. And whose the power and the glory was? The power and the glory was not to be Jesus's in that moment, but the power and the glory was to be God's. Remember Satan's single trick every time. Separate God from those whom he loves. Or separate the ones that God loves from him. Because God will never separate himself from us. And you can imagine that temptation for the Son of God who had all the power, had all the ability, had all of the ability to take care of all the suffering in that very moment of time and then remembered this isn't the plan. That's a short-sighted goal. Because in that moment, death would not have been defeated. Your sin would not have been atoned for had he simply taken care of what had happened in the past without an eye towards what his mission was as the Son of God, where his identity was as the Son of God. And the last one, up on the top of the temple. Standing up on the corner of the temple, and whether it was the very tip of the temple itself or whether it was the temple mount, you see there's this corner on the temple mount that they would do the call to worship from, and somebody would stand out on the corner of that mount and blow a trumpet and call out to the surrounding community that it was time to come to worship. Standing up there, many, many feet above the valley floor. And Satan says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Because it says right in God's word that you quoted to me the first time, it says in Scripture that the angels are charged to take care of you. So it doesn't matter what you do, Jesus. Just throw yourself off the temple and they're going to take care of you. They're going to be there for you. They're going to lift you up in case you stumble. They're going to be right there. Kill yourself, Jesus. They'll lift you up. It's in those moments. Those moments of these temptations, the moments of our temptations when we look at the sin that Satan lays out before us and we want to grab hold of it. And we may forget 
time to time of who we are as God's baptized children. The beautiful part within all of these temptations was that Satan tempted Jesus to be the Son of God for himself, yet he remained in his identity as the Son of God for you. Jesus knew the path he was going on. And it didn't end with stones turning into bread, and it didn't end as taking care of the suffering on top of the kingdoms and listening to Satan in that moment. And it didn't end by proving who he was to Satan by throwing himself off and saying, look at how the angels took care of me. It ended with him bleeding on a cross and dying with your sins upon his shoulders. To defeat death, because in those other settings, death would not have been defeated had Jesus simply listened to what Satan said. So he takes your sin upon his shoulders. He lifts them up upon the cross, lifted up for all to see and hands that glory and that honor and that power to God. Doesn't take it in his own hands. And as he's lifted up as that son of God for you, he's laid down in the tomb as the son of God for you and then he's raised again three days later. And this season, we get to celebrate that in just a handful of weeks on Easter. But every Sunday, we get to see little glimpses of it as well. We get to be thankful for the forgiveness that God gives us. We get to see the smiles on each other's faces as we hear about the love of God as he hands himself over in the sacrament of the altar, his body and blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins, the Son of God for you raised from that tomb with life flowing in his veins and he hands the gift right back over to you and says, my dear child, you're mine. Claimed in the waters of baptism, love poured out for you, forgiven and will always be. Your identity is in him as he was the son of God for you and he holds on to you as his child. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you show us through your son Jesus and the gift of faith and the gift of forgiveness that you have given through him. We falter, we fail, we sin. And yet our identity remains in you because you have made us your children. We pray that in our moments where we are tempted to turn our eyes from you, that you would turn our eyes back to yourself. Send a healthy measure of your Holy Spirit to guard our footsteps as we walk each day with eyes either focused on you or focused on neighbor, but not tempted to turn them inward and think that we can do it on our own, but knowing that you have done it all for us. In your son Jesus' name, amen.